Okay, so this is the last of our into our vision series as we begin the year. As I've said every week, this is um, the first time we've ever done a vision series because we didn't really have a vision apart from get this church off the ground. Um, but now that we are established, we have a vision for what we feel the Lord is calling us to. And it sounds intimidating, but we think we're to focus on these three things for the next 10 years. And so as uh, this is the last of the three, but we feel like God's calling us to partner with God to see the bay flooded with his parent, uh, presence and presence. Um, and so that's uh, renewal. And so the, how we're outworking that is that we are pursuing prayer. We're just going to be saying, Lord, we just need you to move mightily in the bay. But secondly, we're asking God to renew us. For renewal to happen in the bay, it has to begin with this church where there's a new sense of dynamism and life in the souls of the average person that goes to church, where they're more in love with Jesus than ever and discovering more of his life. So we're in pursuit of that. The main way that we're going to outwork that is through discipleship. And so we are building all sorts of resources to help people grow in their journey with God. To be, the definition of a disciple is a person that is learning to be with Jesus, a, learning, a person that's learning to become like Jesus, and a person that's learning to do what Jesus did if they were you. So those are the things that we're learning, and that's primarily through our home churches. And today, our last component is we want to help people find healing in Christ, wholeness. We live in a very broken world. We live in a very broken region. Uh, gang membership has gone up 58% in the last two years. Um, domestic violence stats are horrific. Suicide stats are full on. It is genuine crisis time, and no government policy is going to come in and magically fix broken people. What is going to fix broken people is Jesus. And so we want to help people connect to Jesus. But then we don't want to just say, now that you believe in Jesus, you're sorted. We want to say, no, here's how to walk into maturity. So I want to unpack about what that means uh, in the sermon today. When uh, I was eight years old, um, I moved from Shannon. Who knows where Shannon is? That's good. See, who's driven, th- who's stopped in Shannon more like it? Some of you go, you bought an ice cream in Shannon. Okay, some, most, most people sort of blink in your, genuinely a blink in your miss at town. Um, but I, that's where I grew up. I grew up in Shannon. And so when you're, you know, little, you don't know the size of your town. So, like, it was just a big deal. Shannon, you know what was a huge deal for us? Levin. Whoa. <laughs> like, when we went to Levin, it was like, whoa, this is the big smoke, you know. And so Levin was intimidating, but we had Shannon, which is where, where I grew up. And when I was eight years old, my dad, who was an Anglican minister, uh, mum and dad were like, we feel called to go and church plant in South America. And uh, they, dad had been involved in missions all of his ministry life, and they just had the sense, like, this is where the Lord's calling us. And so I'm the eldest of four children, and uh, my little sister Gabriel was in diapers as we boarded a plane with 18 suitcases and, uh, and moved from Shannon originally to Bolivia um, to study the, uh, Spanish. My parents learned Spanish for six months, uh, full immersion. And then we moved to Uruguay where uh, uh, mum and dad planted a church uh, on the, the capital city of, of Uruguay is Montevideo. So we were on the outskirts of Montevideo in the working class slum border, effectively, is where we, we planted the church. Um, and so... When I was eight years old, I hopped on this plane. The only world I'd known was Shannon. And like I land in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and just had my mind blowing. You know, like it was total culture shock because the poverty was just everywhere. It's one of the poorest countries in South America. And it was very confronting. And 
Uh, and not only that, we had this kind of double layer where not only did we move to Cochabamba, but we, for our, the sake of our education and because we didn't know Spanish, we went to the American high school, the American school, sorry, in Cochabamba. It was an international school, but it was an American school. And it was this double culture shock because the American school, this was in the 90s, and I wonder in hindsight, I mean, I've had a lot of thought and therapy and counseling around the season of my life. I wonder whether um, the school was trying to lean in stronger to the American culture because they felt disconnected in Bolivia, most likely. I'm not sure. But it was so different to New Zealand schools. And subsequently, I got bullied and picked on in the school. And it was just horrible. Uh, meanwhile, we're struggling with like all sorts of stomach problems because you can't drink the water there and the food and all the rest of it. So we're, we're sick as dogs. My parents look back at the photos there when we lived there and they're like, man, we look good. <laughs> Mum and dad loved it in terms of how they looked, even though it wasn't the healthiest way to lose some weight. Um, and, and so we had amoebas and diarrhea and, and worms and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, and, and, and always there was someone with cramps and all the rest of it. And then we're going to this American high school where I got bullied, not just by the kids, but by the teacher in my class. Um, and uh, I, I undenied about sharing some of my experiences in that class, but I can't, um, just because it was so humiliating what she put me through. Um, it was just so humiliating. I, I, don't, I actually don't feel comfortable talking about it today because there's so much shame for me around that moment. So anyway, it was just horrible. <laughs> and we're isolated because we can't speak the language. So you just kind of... You want an ice cream? Good luck with that. You know, you're just pointing, por favor, por favor, and you just isolated the whole time, and it was just full on. Then we moved to Uruguay, uh, which was a lot easier because it wasn't the poorest country in South America, and we slowly begin to pick up Spanish, but I still was, was really isolated in my school environment. And so life got kind of okay by the time I'm um, about 11 when we've been there for three years and I could, learn, I could speak Spanish fluently by this point and I was beginning to make friends. I wasn't disconnected. And then mum and dad were like, we're moving back to New Zealand, which I'm really grateful for because um, the, the crossroads was we either stay in South America and, and effectively we become Uruguayan and we do high school there and we, that's, our, that's our new identity effectively. Or we come back for the high school years and it had been really tough for my parents and tough for our family. And there's just a general sense it's right that we come back to New Zealand. So we come back to New Zealand. I'm 11 years old. And this is pre-internet and all that sort of thing, right? So I've got no idea about Western culture. For three years, I've been completely removed from whatever's been happening in the Western world. And I turn up at a school with a weird accent because I'd been in South America for three years. Um, and had it just totally, I, there was no point of connection I could make with any other child in my school. So subsequently, for the first... <laughs> So subsequently, for the first year we're back, I'm just fully isolated again. I just, I had no friends. And like, eventually, the two nerdiest kids in school, eventually they decided, that after me just hanging, like just hanging around them, <laughs> eventually decided to start talking to me and I became friends with the bottom two on the social <laughs> pyramid of our school. And, uh, and so, oh, sorry. Uh, so here's um, our house in South America. That's my dad looking so thrilled with where we're living. We had the only um, working fridge on the street. 
Um, and this is, uh, so that guy on the left, that young Richie McCaw to the left there, that was me. And, uh, and that was our little church in South America that Dad led, um, a very humble little church. Um, and so, uh, now the reason I say all that <laughs> um, isn't for more therapy. I have talked to a counsellor at length about, about this. But like Jean said earlier, and like Ryan so beautifully, none of this has been organised, um, but like Ryan so beautifully said in his talk, um, I know what it feels like to be other, to be them, as Jean said earlier. I know what it feels like to be them. And I don't want your sympathy, like I've worked through it, and also the reality is my upbringing was peachy compared to some of yours in the room. Like totally sweet, loving parents, you know, brothers and sisters that gone on pretty well, you know, all, all that we needed, the Lord provided, all the stuff we just sung about was our experience. So I'm not trying to say I had a tough upbringing. I had a very easy upbringing, but most of us know what it feels like to be other, to be them, to be isolated, to be disconnected. It's just, it's tough, right? It's just not a pleasant thing to experience. But when you have experienced something like that, you therefore have compassion and empathy for anyone you see that is in that position. You know what it feels like to be there. And Jesus calls us as his followers to be the people that walk across the room, that walk across the social boundary, the religious boundary even, the racial boundary, or whatever other disconnect that our society tries to put up. And we are the one that walk across and become friends. And we are the ones that love those that society often overlooks. And Jesus focused on this countless, countless times. So I want to look at one example of this in Luke 18. If you want to turn to your Bibles, obviously it's on the screen, so that's a luxury if you want to. Uh, But let's have a look at this passage here. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. He told him, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when the people saw it, they also praised God. Thought about this passage a lot, and I'm really moved to my core when I imagine this blind Bartimaeus' life. Uh, There was a huge stigma at this particular time when it came to conditions like blindness, where People thought that if you had, it was like a karma worldview effectively. If you are blind, either you have sinned or your parents have sinned so dramatically that God has inflicted this upon you as punishment. It's interesting how we slide so quickly to a view of God that says he's the one that punishes. That's one of the big wrestles of any Christian is are you indeed what we just sung about earlier? Your love. You're a good, good father, and I'm loved by you. Is that who you really are is the question we all must come to some sort of conclusion on. All of our theology is shaped by how we view God. And so a lot of these, uh, in this culture, people were like, man, and so this guy growing up, totally outcast, he couldn't see. Now we've got, you know, Terry and Harney and others in our church who are blind or, or, or close to who have help from the Blind Foundation and have lots of tools to help them these days, still very challenging and very tricky. 
absolutely. But, but what these guys went through was full on to try and navigate in terms of feeding yourself or looking after yourself in any way. You're utterly dependent on the help of others. And obviously the only sort of income that blind Bartimaeus could have was to stand, like many poor people still do, on the side of the road where it was busy, just hoping that people would have some sort of compassion and mercy so that he could have some sort of income to to feed his family or to feed himself even. And so he's been rejected, he's been humbled uh, all of his life, and yet somehow he had heard about Jesus. We don't know how. We don't know how he had heard about Jesus, but word about Jesus had spread. And, and Jesus, when he started his ministry, said, I'm here for the others. I'm here for the poor. I'm here for the outcast. I'm here for those that are blind. I'm here for those who are imprisoned. That's who I'm here for. This is good news for you folks. And so that word had spread. There's a guy, there's a prophet around, and he's healing sight, and he's setting people free, and he's sticking it to the religious institution. And it's like, you know, this is great news. And so when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is walking past, he is... Uh, He doesn't care what people think. He just starts screaming out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, it takes a sort of humility to get to that point of desperation for Jesus. I'm praying that God does something in our hearts that's that's a fresh desperation for Jesus. As we do this 21 days of prayer and fasting starting in two weeks' time, one of my prayers is that it would instill in us a fresh desperation for Jesus. Because what happens, the things that holds us back from a desperation for Jesus is our pride. We care too much what other people think. But blind Bartimaeus, because of the circumstances of his life, he, he didn't have any pride. There was nothing, people thought they were so low of him anyway, he didn't care. And so he just started screaming out in front of everyone, Jesus, I need you, I need your mercy. It's interesting, you notice people who have had a very tough life are often the most humble. Pride has been beaten out of them. They, they're not holding on to the trying to present well in front of others. Not exclusively, some you know, can be very proud, poor people. But there's something that happens in the brokenness of life. And he yells out, son of David, which is this messianic connotation here. Uh, he, could, he was blind, but he could recognize that this was the Messiah, Pharisees who could see, they couldn't see that in Jesus. This blind guy, interesting, eh, could see Jesus for who he really was. Then in verse 39, it says, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. You know, Luke, this is in Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Matthew's gospel, this story. And you, the reason why is because this is very memorable for the disciples because they were the ones that were leading the way. You'll notice they're like, those who led the way that's kind of us, uh, rebuked this guy and told him to be quiet. I mean, these guys had heard Jesus speak countless times about care for the poor. He had modeled it. He had lived it. And yet they were still mainly caught up on how can I be great in the kingdom of God? Consistently, that's what they're after. How can it be a big deal? How can I be significant? And Jesus is constantly saying, like Ryan read out earlier, it's about humbling yourself. It's about getting alongside those. Like the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who are the humble. And so uh, the disciples are like, they rebuke him and they tell him to be quiet. And, uh, and it's deeply challenging. Like whenever we talk about caring for the poor, just like Ryan, I'm like, I'm the one rebuking them today in my silence or in my lack of generosity or my lack of willingness to give time to those that might be socially awkward or tricky or that it's hard to work out where the connection points are socially or whatever it may be. Like, I don't feel, I used to, you know, you look down on those, uh, you know, those, oh, those disciples, eh? Shocking, shocking. Oh, mate, we would never have done that. No way, you know. Same as the, the story about 
the Pharisee and the tax collector. The trick, the, the genius of that parable is that you go, oh man, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee, which is exactly the problem that Jesus is trying to address. He's just sprung the trap on you because it's like, you're like, oh, I'm just exactly like the tax collector. It's like, no, Ryan's right. We're, we're, like, the, we're like the Pharisees, right? And I'm like this disciple. I look at my own life, and, and I've been really nervous because I've had two quite intense messages so far this year. In terms of quite, you know, this is challenging stuff for us as a church. But I don't, I don't want to beat anyone up this morning saying, you've got to do more for the poor. I think what we need to be praying is we need more of you, Jesus, so that we've got a greater compassion for the poor. Because the minute we start trying to just do things for the poor, they're a project. And, and, it's, and, and we remove us, uh, the, the compassion out of the thing. So, but, but at the end of the day, uh, these guys um, went and told him to be quiet. And he ignores them. <laughs> He's like, screw you, disciples. And, he, and the Bible says he yells even louder. He shouted all the more. Krazo is the, is the Greek here, literally meaning to shriek or to scream. So he goes up a gear. <laughs> and you know what? I actually don't think Jesus walked past blind Bartimaeus and ignored him until he shrieked. I think Jesus was looking at the disciples, going, have you worked out what we're about yet? So Jesus walks past him, and the disciples, those that are closest to him, they miss it again. And they tell him to be quiet, which is totally the opposite of Jesus' heart. And then there's this moment in verse 40, which is so cool, and it just says this, and then Jesus stopped. So it's like, you know, you've got to picture the scene. Whole tribe following Jesus, blind Bartimaeus, you know, and the disciples are like, and everyone's like, and then, and at this point, the disciples are like, oh, oh. <laughs> right? Oh, no. Like, and they're like, just evaluate what we've just done. Oh, no, bad. And then, then, then there's this lovely moment. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's accounts. He orders them. He orders them to bring blind Bartimaeus to him. And again, this is the disciples. Everything that's happening here is to help shape the worldview of the disciple. Jesus could have just walked across to blind Bartimaeus, right? Jesus could have just wandered straight up to blind Bartimaeus, had the same conversation. He stopped. Then he orders the disciples. Guys, order. Go bring him to me. Trying to give the, get the message through, this is what disciples do. Disciples bring people to Jesus. The one who heals, the one who has mercy, the one who has compassion. He orders them. The very people that were insulting the beggar were then ordered to escort him to Jesus for an audience. They became servants of the king, bringing a guest into his presence. That's what happens in this particular moment. Then in verse 41, Jesus asks, what do you want? Fascinating question. He asks this a few times, Jesus. What do you want? It's like, Jesus... <laughs> It's pretty obvious he's blind and he's screaming out, have mercy on me. So, but Jesus asked the question, what do you want? And, and it's an important question to ask. He asks us this today, what do you want? Many of us have made friends with our dysfunction. Many of us have made friends with our addictions. Many of us have made friends with our dysfunctional habits. And Jesus never said he would deliver us from our friends. He only said he would deliver us from our enemies. And so a lot of the time in my history, I look back in my life and I'm like, I have made friends with my addiction. And if Jesus had looked me in the eye and said, do you want to get rid of that? I'm not sure I would because it was a comfort for me. It was something I would hold on to. While it wasn't great and it was destroying my life, at least it gave me some sense of comfort. I didn't fully trust Jesus to let go. 
and to run to him. And Jesus asked us a number of times in the scriptures, what do you want? And friends, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to, to let go of that pride? Do you want to let go of that dysfunctional pattern? Do you really want that? Jesus isn't going to force himself upon you. But I tell you what, the minute you say yes, he comes running. In the minute you say yes, he's there. And so, uh, so uh, Jesus says, uh, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Bartimaeus in this moment? Blind all of his life. Used to begging. Used to, and it's like he had faith. Faith doesn't mean that you're like 100%. Faith is like, I'm going to give it a good crack. I'm going to, just, I'm going to, go, with, I'm going to go for Jesus. And so realistically, Bartimaeus would have been like, it's a long shot, but I've got nothing to lose. I might as well just go crazy when he walks past. And hopefully some of the stories I've heard him are true, about him are true. And he, maybe that'll be, and his faith, that's, it may have been a mustard seed, it may have been a whole lot, but whatever it was, his faith, Jesus says, meant that he, he, you're healed. And if, imagine this, the first thing you see is Jesus' face. Imagine the first thing after all of that. I mean, I can't wait to see Jesus face one day. I can't wait. One day we're all going to see him face to face. Oh, it's going to be incredible. I love his presence, but I want to see his face. I want to see his face. Blind by Emmaus, after all of that suffering, the first thing he got to see was the face of Jesus. Unbelievable. And in that moment, his socioeconomic position changed like that. In that moment, his economic opportunities changed just like that. In that moment, his future changed just like that. Everything changed as he saw the face of Jesus. Unbelievable, so beautiful. The crowd's reaction is equally beautiful. They'd been rebuked by Jesus, certainly his disciples. It was a bit of a slap on the wrist. But they had the humility, as I hope we will, as we look at our own lives and reflection of this scripture, to say, aren't you good? Aren't you amazing, God? Aren't you so good? And they began to praise God. God's awesome. Everywhere Jesus went, it like results in this party. Like again, you, you've got to activate your imagination here. You read a line in the, in the Bible. You're so used to reading the Bible, just zoned out and bored probably, that, you, you, that a lot of the ancient church, the church would have practices of trying to imagine, like put yourself in the story. Everywhere Jesus went, like this guy's sight just got restored. And it's like people just, everywhere Jesus went, party started. <laughs> I love it. Because I'm like, that Bay Vineyard, if we're his body of Christ today, we want to go into places that are deeply broken and start some parties. Start some real parties of life and of joy. And so it was party time. Stunning story, one of many, many uh, that Jesus told about care for the poor or for the broken and so we want to partner with Jesus in his mission to see people find life and find wholeness. And so this is outworked in two ways. This is just a terrible picture because I don't know how to illustrate this of a guy looking longingly in the desert. Um, but for you personally, um, we need to wrestle with what it looks like to love. There's two ways that this is out expressed personally and corporately. And so personally, we have to continue to wrestle with the question, as I stand in that desert in my lovely designer clothes, what does it look like? <laughs> I stare into the distance wondering what does it look like for me to be uh, filled with compassion and what does it look like for me in terms of my time or my money or any of these things. What is it? There's a personal response to this and the, uh, 
Reality is that if you continue to track with Jesus, you'll get more generous. Your life will be a greater blessing. You'll sacrifice more to help those who are less fortunate find some sort of hope and some sort of future in Jesus. It just, this is what happens. I've seen it way too many times now. And people, we get nervous about generosity because we're like, we want to stay in control. But the richest life you can live in every way that actually counts is using every bit of resource and blessing that you've been giving to be a blessing to others. And to, to often we're invited to live simply so that others can simply live. Often we're invited to, to live in such a way that we don't live like everyone else, and we're being hugely conditioned with consumerism. But to actually say, no, I want my life to be a blessing. I don't know what that looks like for you, and that's between you and the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. He knows where you're at. He's not going to make you feel stink. He's not going to make you do more than you, th- you know, he's not going to break you by saying, I'm only pleased with you if you give X amount of money to the tear fund or World Vision or the poor or whatever it may be. He's not like that. He's so kind and he's like, why don't you take this next step with me and trust me for this? Why don't you just take this little step and trust me for that? And so just allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. Can I just say on this, one of the things that I'd love us to um, shoot for is to move beyond a handout and graduate to a place where we have relationship. I've been around the blocks enough uh, to know that money helps, and please be generous. <laughs> to, we'll set up, I'm going to talk about it in a second, our new trust, the Manawa Order Trust, which is all to do with how we do community work. Please be generous. Please be generous. We've got all sorts of initiatives that we want to, we're going to talk about in a second. Please be generous. Like, we need your money, absolutely. And the poor don't care whether you're, whether you're um, with, you know, one, they just, like, anything will do. So please give your money. But let's move beyond that because what broken people need isn't just some sort of money. They need someone that loves them enough that they're going to walk into their world. They're going to be their friend. They're going to know their name and know their story and be with them where the chips are down. You know, there was... Um, there was a friend of mine in Christchurch who actually died um, two years ago, very, a young guy, 40, died in his early 40s from cancer. Um, but he was a tough customer, man. Whoo-wee, was he broken. Um, you know, fetal alcohol stuff in there, um, very, very broken uh, background, um, addictions. And I met him when he'd come out of prison because someone would like to connect us. And um, I just... This is what God will do. Like, God will give you a grace for that person. And so everyone else couldn't stand the guy because he was hard work. And for whatever reason, I'm not bragging, it was a grace. It was supernatural grace. Because the number of times he told me to F off, and the, and the, the couple of times when he did do- doughies outside my office window to teach me a lesson, the number of times he just threw his lollies and made my life tricky, and the number of times he called me things that you just you would just say, normally that's a walk away point. And I just had a grace, and we stuck in there, and we stuck in there. And, and thankfully, over the years following Jesus, I realized you can't just go, this is my project. You go, this is my friend. This is my friend. And you've got to move past, we're going to try and fix you within a year or two, which I definitely tried, uh, to like, I'm going to love you unconditionally for however many decades it takes for you to get the message that you can be loved. Because the, the, the worst thing I could have done was to walk away like everyone else had walked away. The worst thing I could have done was just to walk away. But I hung in there by the grace of God. And he walked away. And every time he walked away, I said, just so you know, this is your decision. My door is always open. You can always come back. Once you've cooled down and calmed down or whatever, I'm always here for you, bro. 
and he would. And tragically, he died, and I took his funeral. But I knew where he was going, hallelujah. He had come to faith. And even though he wasn't a picture of wholeness when he died by a long stretch, he was loved. He was loved. Loved by me, loved by a whole bunch of people at that funeral, and by his heavenly Father, most importantly. We've got to move beyond just giving money, thinking that that's our contribution to helping broken people find life. And we need to move to a place where, we can, where you can tell stories. You know, uh, Jackie Pullinger uh, wrote that when uh, the Toronto blessing was happening and there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 90s, she said it was amazing. Everyone was flying to where the, where the laughter was because the Holy Spirit was getting poured out and people were just laughing and getting healed in that. And it was beautiful and it was legitimate and it was just an amazing move of God. But Jackie said, I was just waiting, though, for people once they'd encountered the healing of the laughter to then fly to the places where there were tears. And she said, no one came. No one came to where the tears were. No one came to where the tears were. Friends were called to walk to where the tears are. And every time I preach this, I feel so convicted. And every single time I, pre- I preach any of this stuff, and I've preached a lot of it over the years, I keep coming back to John the Baptist's prayer. Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. I don't have the, I don't have the love in me to love a broken, broken person, but I know the one who does. I don't have the patience, but I know the one who does. I don't have the grace, but I know the one who does. Nothing has got my, on me on my knees more than just realizing I do not have what it takes, but I know the one who does. Lord, would you somehow by your spirit empower me so that I could be your hands and feet in this broken and hurting world. And so it's, we have a personal responsibility and that's just a journey between us and the Lord. And again, I'm just gonna, I have to say it again. This isn't, we don't do this to please God. The cross has done it all. He's pleased with us. We do this in response to his love. We do this in response to the sanctifying work that he does in us where we want to move gears from just receiving his salvation to living like Jesus and bringing salvation, partnering with him. And so then we've got a corporate responsibility. Here's our church on a big day. I only take pictures when we're looking really full. Uh, but here's us looking very full and like a real, oh, we've done well. So this is, uh, this, you'll notice that. I'd never, never take photos of empty chairs uh, and post that to Instagram. Um, but... Um, you know, on an average Sunday, they reckon there's about a third of people that aren't there for all sorts of different reasons. And so we've got um, a, a pretty decent-sized church in the Bay already. And so we've got a personal responsibility to work out what does this look like, to, to love the lost and to help people find wholeness. And we have a corporate responsibility. As a body, what, what can we do? Because we can do stuff together that has a greater impact than if we just try and chip away at things on our own. What we can do together has an exponential impact versus what we try and do on our own. So uh, we've got a bunch of things that we have set up. Now, we've been going for two years, just under two years, between two and um, March, but I'm very proud of what we've got set up already and what we're in the process of setting up. And so we have, um, uh, we're we're excited, we're going to hear a bit more about this in coming weeks, but we're going to be starting a ministry called CAP, which is called Christians Against Poverty, and this is primarily a service to help people with their budget. Uh, And so one of the ways that we can help people find wholeness, particularly if you're under the pump, most people's stress comes from finances. 
And most of us in the room are probably, you know, know what that feels like. But even our pressures are, are very little compared to how most people in Marainui and in Onikawa and, and other places are now um, in Flaxmere. So the pressure that people are under with their finances is unbelievable. It's just very difficult to make ends meet. And it's really tricky if you've never been taught how to budget, how to budget, right? It's like, how do you try and work this stuff out? So CAP's an amazing organization that Steve Bradley's going to be uh, leading and initiating here in the Bay uh, to help people get budgeting support. Uh, and so we're going to be uh, hearing from the guys that lead CAP in about three or four weeks' time. They're going to come and share in our Sunday message, and, uh, and we're in the process of doing the background work to get that going. Uh, and so Steve will be sharing about that in time as well. We set up last year the Manawa Order Trust, and this was a trust that we set up to help. Um, uh, basically, we set up a trust because we want to get money, right? People don't give money to the Bay Vineyard Trust, like community organizations and charities. Very reluctant to give money to the Bay Vineyard Trust, but we'll happily give money to a trust that's purely dedicated to helping uh, do social service in the community. So we set up the Manawa Order Trust last year for that end. We want to be smart about how we do things. And so uh, Charlotte Buxton uh, is going to be starting a play group. This is taking a long time to get off the ground. There's been all sorts of battles of councils. But this is anything that we want to stick under this trust to help, with the to help the community, we can do. So if you've got an idea, we're all ears. We want to hear what your idea is in terms of how we could be a blessing to those that are struggling in our community to help find wholeness. And Charlotte had this heart that says, uh, in fact, we got feedback that said, if you want to help folks that are struggling, get alongside the mums, because many of the dads are in prison and gangs or have gone AWOL and tricky, and we want to we want to work there, of course, and we've got boys already kind of engaged there, but, but the thing is, if you get alongside the mums and their children, there's a high chance you can help break some of that generational stuff. And so that was Charlotte's heart, so she's been working on that. It's taken a while to get going. We thought we'd be going by now, but it is still in process. Um, Tahahi, we've just started, and there will be another training coming up for Tahahi. If you don't know what Tahahi is, it's an interchurch um, organization, so we're partnering with a whole bunch of churches around the bay, and the police refer low-level domestic violence cases to us, and we go and visit and simply give love and listen and support. And so we've got people that have been trained up and police vetted and all the rest of it, but we need a whole stack more. And we're rostered on about one in six weeks. Where's, uh, where's, where's Nikki? Jean? Yeah, one in six or one in seven? Yep. So, uh, so it's not like a massive commitment. There's a week that we're on. Police will give us referrals. And we just simply go and we give love and we hear and we listen and we support. And then if there's practical ways that we can support those sort of folks, we do. But again, our dream is to build relationship. And that's one way that we can do that. So Tahahi's there. And then as you heard earlier, we're starting this recovery meal, which we're really excited about, to help uh, just bring community to those that, uh, that want to track together uh, and have a lovely sense of, of mutual encouragement and support around a meal, just saying, how, and, and again, that question at the end of the night, how's it going? How's it going? And it's not, we're, not trying to re, we're not replacing AA or any of these other things. People still need to go to these things, but we want a community of support for, for, the, for those things. And we've been praying for that for a long time. We've had many people come out of um, addiction centres here in the Bay and visit us as a church. But guys, this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And um, I just really, this is a 10-year vision we have to see renewal in the bay, to see people discipled, and to see people find wholeness in Jesus. And I'm like, 
I want us praying into this. This is why we're doing 21 days of prayer and fasting. I want us to pray into this. Lord, we're normal and we're ordinary and we don't have any multimillionaires. I really want to see Rob Jury get saved and become part of our church and all of those things. It's just ordinary people, but somehow, Lord, you want to use us to, to, to go to the blind Bartimaeuses of this world and to love them and, and to not make the mistake the disciples made, but to learn from you, Jesus, and to continually be bringing people to Jesus. He's the one that gives the mercy. He's the one that gives the hope. And like, I don't want us to turn into a social, you know, social service institution because we're a kingdom of God institution. And like, so Jesus is like any excuse that we've got to talk about Jesus, pray for people, and, and in Tahahi, we can pray for, it's, it's legit, it's part of the organization. We can pray for anyone that the police refers us to. How cool is that? Um, you know, we want all of this to be drenched in Jesus. The recovery meal, we don't want it just to be some sort of, it's like we want the Holy Spirit there helping people find life. But, but friends, we've got to restore belief that God uses ordinary people who say, I'm available to you to do great things for the kingdom of God, to see help the poor get alleviated from their suffering and their brokenness. It's always been ordinary people who have simply said, I'm in, I'm prepared to do it. Jackie Pullinger, ordinary person. Mother Teresa, ordinary person. These are all ordinary people who become heroes of ours, but they're just, you, you meet the ordinary. They're just radically up for being used by God to go to where the tears are. And that's who we want to be. And so I wanted to invite us to, to spend some moments in prayer on a number of things. I'd love us to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us about what our part to play is in this. This is just what God wants to do, renew and restore all things, to bring healing and to bring life. And the great hope we have is that one day he'll bring that work to completion. Hallelujah. No more suffering, no more tears, no more poverty, no more war. There'll be peace. It'll be, and that's, I hold on to that hope more and more as every year goes past. Until that day, we partner with him to see heaven break into earth now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'd love us just to wait on the Lord and say, Lord, what does it look like for me to be part of that personally? And Lord, give me ideas about what we could do as a church. And then I'm going to roll up my sleeves and help make them happen. And the last thing I want to pray for is that God will give us compassion. Rather than, rather than just feeling guilty or stink, that actually we'll just be filled with compassion. Amen.